Elevates. Trusting all is well while it's all. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to Elevated Frequencies reading segments where you maintain your visual to be deeply unlocked in order to tap into your confidence to get things adjusted. I am your host, your reader, your narrative, your confidant, your counselor, your sister, Sherry, also known as Shy Shy. Um, I am so sorry for the delay on getting this out to you guys. I have not been feeling well this week, and I literally was in bed. I um, just felt more like myself today. Um, I have more strength and everything, so... I'm going to do my due diligence and we're going to read chapters 39 and 40. And they're really short and simple, so this is going to be short and sweet. So, without further ado, let's just get into it. Well, let me not. A quick recap from last week. Um, There was a big kind of blow up uh, for sale. Not so much Brie. But sell uh what they discovered exposed some things about Cell's mother that I'm sure has kind of reopened some wounds for him and um there's no telling what's going to blow up from here or how he may react. So that's kind of where we left off last week. And now we can dive in. I'd never considered that the loss of someone else's mother would be so connected to losing my own. Or that the loss would go hand in hand with death, destruction, and a horrifying fate. Nick's mother, Sal's, mine. How many mothers has the order taken? I want to say something. Offer something to Sal. But the tension in his body and the thunder building in his unseeing gaze are all screaming at me to run. Run away before the bomb goes off, before the building explodes. Suddenly, Cell is on his feet. He paces to the end of the room, the back of his hand pressed hard against his mouth, like he doesn't trust what will come out of himself. It takes everything in me to stay seated when he kicks his closet door and the wood splinters into a wood boot-shaped hole. I realize that in this moment I'm watching grief, like mine, come crashing down on Cell all at once. The sudden, sharp, all-consuming pain of loss is tearing into him right in front of me. I remember how that felt. I remember how much it hurts. The pages fall from my hand. I don't remember standing up. I don't remember walking to him. I just... I know that my arm is around his middle. His entire body turns to stone as soon as I touch him. And his smoke and whiskey scent swirls around us, heavy and burning. But I don't let go. I'm sorry, I whisper into his spine. He doesn't answer, but his muscles release the tiniest fraction. I wonder how long it's been since someone touched him. We stay like that until his breathing slows. When he finally speaks, his voice is pitched low. You called me a monster once. My arm drops and I pull away. My voice colored with despair. I was angry. I I didn't mean that. He turns and his red-rimmed eyes sweep across my features. After a moment, a shadow crosses his face and his mouth folds into a small, rueful smile. Like he wants to admonish me and call me a liar. I look for tears, but he hasn't shed them. His eyes take on a faraway haunted expression. Maybe you were right. It looks like I came from one. I've never heard Cell speak this way. So dazed. Like he's not really here in the room with me at all. I want to comfort him. 
but I feel like it's not my place to offer comfort in the face of his family history. And yet, I'm the reason he knows that history in the first place. I'm the reason he's standing there, hollow and fractured. The guilt is enough to choke me. So that she may bear and hair, he whispers, his eyes turned inward. I flinch at the cold language, the hope and expectation that his mother would produce a child, a weapon, for the order fills me with nauseous horror. He shudders and his eyelashes flutter, as if he's just remembered that I'm standing in front of him. He inhales deeply through his nose and looks over my shoulder at the pile of paperwork behind me. When he excels, the cold, calculating distance cell is back. His analysis, curt. It appears I was lied to, likely for my protection, which means there was no ukul, no mission. They released her for a time and took her away when she relapsed. I suppose I was too young to see she was losing herself or too admiring of her abilities. Watching him homes his way through his own devastation is almost more than I can take. I open my mouth, but he cuts me off. At any rate, she's alive. His voice breaks on the revelation. Then he sucks in another breath. But our locked away has been for years, so she's not our corporate. And it seems I inherited her penchant for paranoia. So perhaps there is no mole at all and never was. As for your quest, your mother may be one of the witnesses. I'd already thought of that, of course, but... So, he pushes past me. We should find out what happened to your mother, he says flatly. He crashes down and pushes the affidavit aside, flipping through the files other papers. I kneel beside him and place a hand on his forearm, ignoring the small sizzle between our skin. He freezes without looking at me, muscles hard beneath my fingers. Cell. His voice drops into a register meant to scare and intimidate. Don't. But I hear the restraint desperation in his voice. A pause. Then, quietly, I recognize that sound. It's the sound of holding onto a cliff by the edge of your nails. The sound of barely containing a pain so immense that to look at it, to raise your own flesh and examine what's beneath, is to risk falling into a darkness you know you'll never escape. It hits me then that I'd come all this way for my mother and for the truth. But the pain of existing without her, the deep searing wound in my own chest, hasn't gotten any better. It has only changed shape. Wordlessly, I slip my hand from his arm. His shoulders sag as if he's just released a heavy weight, and he reaches for the papers again. Here. He, st- he taps a stack of papers clipped together. These are the witnesses who were mesmered. All students. Looks like alphabetical order. The first few witnesses in the pile are all white. Psychology student, football player, theater kid. Then I flip the page and everything stops when I see her face. Sal notices my shaking hands. Did you find her? The words don't come because there are no words. Her student picture must have been taken when she just arrived to campus as an undergraduate because her features are relaxed and bright with the promise of adventure. The creases of her cheeks and the edges of her eyes, the ones from laughter and time, have yet to form. Her sharp brown eyes stare at the camera as if challenging it in a contest she knew she'd win. Hair permed straight and curled at the ends. Nothing like the short, cropped coils she'd adopted when I was ten. I almost forgot what she looked like, I whisper. Cell's voice is gentle. 
What does the file say? I release a wavering breath and flip to the one-page summary. Witness 11. Faye Oyelo Carter. Age 19. Sophomore. Biology major. Chemistry minor. Cell lets out a low whistle. Bio major? Chem minor? That sounds painful. I hear the quiet pride in my own voice. That's a scientist. What else does it say? I keep reading. The scion of Owain and Squire Harris found Miss Carter and two other once-borns, see file names Mitchell and Howard, near the Ogoff E. Drag. What is that? Ogoff Athragik, he corrects my pronunciation. The Welsh is the soft th in leather. It means cave of the dragon. The cave is at the center of the tunnel network. Keep reading. Near the Ogav of Thraig, Thraig, cornered by a hound, once the creature was killed, the three once-borns were taken into custody. Cell sighs in frustration. I'm sure they came willing to, after the shock of seeing a full-corp hellhound. Probably had to knock him out first. I glare at him and he shrugs. It's protocol. I release a steady breath. Taken into custody and brought back to the lodge. Once their memories were altered, Miss Carter and the others were monitored in chapter custody for one day to assure the mesmer had taken and released. As with the other witnesses, Miss Carter will be monitored during her time on campus by order members and assigned a field Merlin when she graduates. What's the rest? Cell points to a table under the written summary. I realize what the table is, is almost immediately. Check-ins. They're all dated like a log, with columns for date, time, location, and a short section for notes. I point to one of the early rows. May 1st, 1995, 10.31 a.m., Undergraduate Library, UNCCH, working with Ms. Carter on a group project final for our Ling 207 class. Have spent several hours with her this week, even with some gentle probing about campus events. She does not mention or recall last month's attack. Cell hums. So they then just watch her. They test her. How many inches are there? I flip the page and flip again and flip again. There must be dozens of pages here. At least one entry every week for the first year. Then once a month after graduation. They kept tabs on her for years. Witness protection, he murmurs, sort of. <clears throat> He clears his throat and takes the sack from me, thumbing to the very back. Let's see what the last entry says. I swallow around the lump in my throat. Okay. Cell pauses, his finger resting on the final slip of paper in the back, and dips his head to catch my eye. This is the last page, he says, but I hear the meaning behind the words. I know what he's really asking me is, are you ready? My heart pounds in my chest and blood rushes in my ears like an ocean. Am I ready? I'd started this whole mission worried about finding the truth and convinced that nothing could be worse than not knowing. But now? Sales eyes are patient but wary. And no wonder. He just learned his own horrible truth. Read it, I tell him. May 13th, 2020, 9.18 a.m. Bentonville County Hospital, Bentonville, North Carolina. Miss Carter was killed in a hit and run near her home at 8.47 p.m. last night, May 12th. I was alerted to her death by a vassal working in the local police department. In order to confirm Miss Carter's death, I assumed the identity of an officer. She leaves behind a husband, Edwin Matthews, and a teenage daughter.
As recorded in the enclosed logs, Miss Carter has never shown any evidence of her memory returning or knowledge of the incidents. As such, she has not, in the past or currently, given pause to pursue containment steps. This is the final entry in Witness 11's file. Sale passes me the paper, but I wave it away. I can't touch it. I can't breathe. Is this the Merlin you saw? I drag my eyes back to a small photo clipped to the back of the file. In a single rushing moment, I'm back at the hospital with new details filling in the blank. Thin mouth, bushy brows, blue eyes, his badge flickering in the light. Everything inside me pinches and recoils, twists and tightens until it feels like my entire body is a knot made of lead, heavy and poisonous. A low pained whine escapes me, ending in a choking sob. I can only nod in answer. Cell reaches for me, but I squeeze my eyes shut. After that, he doesn't try to reach touch me again. I'm sorry, Bree. That's it, I say warily, a strange numbness flooding my body. A humorless laugh leaves me in a low huff, and I open my eyes. <laughs> now I know. I thought that once I had the truth, it would get better. That things would feel right. But they don't. Everything's just as wrong all over again. I stand and start toward the door. Bree, wait. Sal follows me. You can sense Aether. You can see it. Feel it. But you also resist illusion. If Mesmer doesn't work on you, Maybe it didn't work on your mother either. Yeah, my throat is tight. I already thought of that. And? And? I whip around, fighting back tears. Don't you get it? She did the smart thing. The thing I should have done in the first place. She hid. She hid every time one of those scions or squires pretended to be her friend and tested her. She hid what she knew from everyone. For 25 years... So that this medieval boys club, this feudalist fever dream, this whole fucked up world of yours could never find her. Cell looks like he wants to say something, but thinks better of it. Good. Nothing he could say could make this moment better. My chest feels like it's imploding. She hid it from me. Or she tried to. But it didn't work. Because I'm a selfish daughter and I had to come here and dig. You're not. Cell starts, but I don't let him finish. The words spill out of my mouth in an angry, sobbing rush. She didn't want me to find the order. I turned snarling at Cell, because she didn't want me to become your target, but I did anyway. He flinches, but I don't care. I tug my shirt down to the still healing purple bruise on my collarbone from tonight's trial. Didn't want me to get hurt, but I did anyway. I had to barge in with the barest shadow of a plan and no clue what I was doing. My voice breaks off. I see words of comfort and repair hovering uselessly on his lips. He wants to help me, but he doesn't know how. I do. The idea unfurls in my head like a matted, frayed rope thrown down a well. I know logically that climbing that rope is a mistake, but in this moment, Anything is better than staying here. Anything. The words from my mouth in a desperate whisper. Take her away. Cell looks bewildered. Who? I step toward him. I don't want this anymore. I don't want to feel this anymore. Understanding floods his features and after it panned, sickening expression. Breathe. No. I plead with him. You can do it, please. I won't break the mesmer. I'll, I'll let it happen. When I reach him, his lips curl in something like disgust. Don't ask me that. If I can't have her, I don't want to remember her. 
You don't mean that, he hisses. Yes, I do, my eyes streaming with tears. He takes a deep breath, holds his ground. Even if I wanted to, he shakes his head. I'm not powerful enough. The older and more traumatic the memory, the stronger the replacement has to be. Like for like. Memories of equal weight. Memories of equal weight. There are no memories that could equal this weight. And the last hour has just made them heavier. I break then. Snap. The tears run hot down my cheeks and my breathing comes in ragged sobs. Cell watches me with a sad, helpless expression. Almost like he's worried for me. Hurting for me. But if that's true... It's another truth I can't handle. I open the door and run into the hallway, letting the door slam shut behind me. Sal lets me go at first. I make it all the way to the foyer and front door before he catches up. I can feel his gaze along the back of my neck. Leave me alone, Sal. He grasps my left shoulder. You aren't in any shape to walk home alone. I jerk back, but we both know the only reason he lets me go is because he chooses to. He stands there in the grand foyer, a shadow with searching eyes, and suddenly it all becomes so clear. He was born to this world, for better or for worse. And Nick and the Scions and the Squires and the pages? They grew up living inside the Order's legends. Suddenly, all I can see is the hundreds of years of history that don't belong to me. A war that doesn't belong to me. I never should have came here. Bree, he reaches for me again, right as I open the front door, and come face to face with Nick. Oh, shit. Nick is home. All right. Chapter tw- chapter 40, guys. Chapter 40. We're just going to keep it going. This is only three pages. So just say, don't even go for snacks. Don't even go for snacks. Let's just get into it. It only takes a second for Nick's eyes to take in my tear-stained face, Cell's hand on my shoulder, and Cell standing behind me. Russ and Felicity peer around Nick with wary expressions, just as Sal's hand falls away. What the hell is going on here? Nick demands. My breath falters at the look in Nick's eyes. In them is the small beginning of some strong, sharp emotion, straining outward like a blade against cloth. I need to go home. I make as if to move around him, and he catches me around my good elbow before I take two steps. What? Why? He looks between me and Sel's stoic expression, directs the blade of his anger at his king's mage. What did you do to her? I didn't do this, Sel says wearily. Not that you'll believe me. He didn't. Didn't do anything, I confirm, and slip out of Nick's grip. I push between him and Russ and move down the stairs. Nick follows me. Then why are you crying? I whirl around. I need to go home. I can't be here right now. I catch Felicity's eye. Can you please drive me home, Felicity? I can drive you home. I can't look at him. Felicity, please. She glances between Nick and me, back to Sal, then to Russ. Russie, can you get my car? Russ doesn't hesitate. He jogs down the stone steps towards the lodge garage. Bree! Let her go, Nick, Sal says from the doorway, and Nick and I both freeze. Nick. Not Nicholas. Sal's eyes find mine. Our eyes meet for half a heartbeat, so quick, but Nick catches it. In that split second, he sees something new between me and his king's mage. Something I can't explain right now. Not even to myself. When Nick turns back to me, the raw confusion and hurt in his eyes crush my heart. I stammer, try to start several sentences, 
but none of them take hold in my mouth. The words are caught in a jumble, and I don't know where to start. I stare at him without an answer. Finally, I utter the only thing that can make him understand, my voice cracking on every word. It was just an accident. That was the wrong thing to say. Nick takes a step closer, his voice soft and pained. What was just an accident, B? He doesn't know I mean my mother. He thinks I mean this something with Cell. Oh, God, no, that's not... There's movement inside the lodge. Behind Cell, I see Tor and Sar, both in pajamas. A crowd is gathering. They'll all know. They'll all see me like this. I tear my eyes away and back to Nick. Take a shaky breath and try again. Because he needs to understand. The car. I whisper, fresh tears burning at my eyes. That night, the hospital. No one. Just. An accident. As understanding passes through him, the blood drains from his face. The devastation I see there is all for me, all for my pain. But if I accept it, if it touches me, I'll shatter. I know I will. He reaches for me, but I raise both palms and his hands fall. That simple gesture, pushing him away, looks like it breaks him as much as it breaks me. How? How? How did you? He stops, turns again to the lodge doorway where Cell is watching him, watching us, his face unreadable. This time, when Nick faces me, his eyes hold stony accusation. With him? I whisper, I'm sorry, walking backward on the lawn. This was all a mistake. Tires over gravel. Russ pulling up behind me in Velocity's Jeep. Nick shaking his head no. The car idles loud enough that the legend born in the foyer can't hear me. But Nick can, and so can Sal. I can't be here anymore. The air leaves Nick's chest in a broken rush. He knows I don't mean tonight. He knows I mean forever. No, wait. He shakes his head, desperation making his eyes bright. Please, I need you. You have to know I choose you. I want you, Bree. If Camlin is coming, I want you. The lead in my stomach turns hot, melting into all of my limbs. The words feel heavy and thick at the back of my throat. But I say them anyway. No. You don't. I climb into the car and leave him behind, standing alone in the gravel as we drive away. Sheesh. Sorry, y'all. That is the end of chapter 39 and chapter 40. You know what? I ain't gonna hold you. What I'm gonna do is just because of my delay on getting this one to y'all. I'm going to read chapter. And we're going to get into chapter part four. We're going we're gonna to read uh, a little part of chapter 41. We're going to read a, f- a few. Okay. Or we might just read the whole chapter. We'll never know. But let's just. Let me keep it going. I feel like treating y'all today. I especially since again. I, I, I made y'all wait for this. So part four. Splinter. Chapter 41 My phone dings so many times that night and day and the next that after a while I just block Nick's number. Then Sar tries. William. Greer. Witty. I block all of them. One at a time. It hurts, but the pain feels right necessary 
like I deserve it for wasting their time. I'd taken Nick, Nick's necklace off as soon as I got home and buried the chain and coin under some socks in my drawer. I thought myself brave for facing the order, for chasing down the truth. But every time I close my eyes, all I see are the faces of the people I've lied to in order to find it. My mother didn't pursue the order and its war. My mother didn't share her root craft. Not with me and not with anyone else. The least I can do, after defying her in so many ways, is finally following in her footsteps. The next days pass in a blur because I forced him to. I focus only on what's in front of me. Classes, studying in the library, meals with Alice, sleepless nights, repeat. I take the sling off in public so no one asks questions. Alice asks questions anyway. I tell her I fell during initiation. Patricia made good on her promise to call my father and tell him we weren't a good fit, that she wishes me well. I know she said that last part because he calls me to ask if I like to talk about it. I say no. I walk the campus half expecting Nick or Greer or even Sal to jump out at me from behind a line of students or a tree. Not that they ever have. I think it's a legend-born rule to avoid one another on campus. But they could find me, if they want it. It makes it much easier on me that they don't. I can do what my mother did, I think. Live oblivious in the world the way that everyone else does. Maybe our paths were different. But my mother and I came to the same conclusion. I have to forget them. Because remembering is too dangerous. Maybe after class? Mm. I chew absentmindedly on my blueberry jam smothered biscuit as I read the DTH. I didn't even know until this week that Carolina had a school newspaper. Break. Yeah? You're making a mess. What? Alice points at my lap where three warm pools of butter have expanded into lakes that stretch from the horoscope section to an article on student body elections. A biscuit crumb falls from my hand into the center of a butter lake and promptly drowns. Damn. I push the paper away while she covers a laugh behind her coffee cup. I'd let Alice drag me out of bed earlier than was strictly necessary, at least by my own standards. So we can actually eat breakfast is the type of reasoning that only sounds reasonable if you're Alice. Alice, whose parents get her up at 6.30 a.m., even on weekends. Did you hear anything I just said? No. She puts her cup down and gives me a long stare. A clunk, 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 reaches us from across the dining room hall, where students are dumping used and empty food trays into a conveyor belt with varying degrees of care. You've been weird all week. I poke at my bowl of cheesy grits and shrug. Just focusing on school stuff. I got a C- minus on that English test, so it's clearly warranted. What were you saying? A C minus? Maddie, you've never gotten anything below an A in English in your life. What's going on? Alice tilts her head and fixes me with a stare. I stare back. After a moment of silence, she sighs, wrinkling her mouth and nose together. I said I know you don't have a dress for the gala thing this weekend. We should go shopping after class. There are tons of boutiques downtown, and I saw some sales. I look away and gnaw at the inside of my cheek. Yeah, about that. Um, I'm not going. Alice rears back, gawking at me like I've grown scales. I'm sorry? What did you just say? I blink. Um, I decided not to go through with that group, so I'm not going. Hi. Yes. Hello. I regret to inform you that you've 
had a temporary lapse in judgment. Do you think these things happen? And I'm going to try not to make you feel so bad about it, but you're going to that gala. Uh, Alice, I don't want to go. You are going to that gala, Maddie. Even if I have to force you into one of those Charlotte dresses, mm-hmm, Alice says, her eyes gone flinty behind her frames. I sigh and fold up the greasy newspaper as neatly as I can, then toss it onto my tray. You don't understand. Alice crosses her arms over her chest. I understand you've suddenly stopped talking to a hotty hot boy who adores you and you won't explain why. And it sounds like he did nothing wrong. I understand you have an invitation to a black tie event that you seem to want to toss in the trash. And I understand that I begged my parents to let me stay on campus this weekend just so I can help you get ready. And honestly, Bree, we were way too nerdy in high school for me to let you know this, let you throw this opportunity away. I gape at her. What has gotten into you? Um, 16 years of Disney movies that I know you watched just as much as I did. So what's really going on here? I don't want to go. I am loud enough that Alice flinches and the two girls sitting beside us turn their heads into our direction. I pull my bag out from underneath the table and start sipping it up. And I need to get to class. Alice watches it, shaking her head. This ain't it, Maddie. What's not it? This! Waving her hand at me. A couple of weeks ago, you were all over this group, texting this Nick kid all the time, going to therapy, staying out late, and this week, all of that's gone? You get back to the room earlier than I do, spend more time studying than I do, reading the school newspaper, and I know you're not sleeping. She shakes her head again. This ain't it. You get mad at me for not taking school seriously enough. And now I'm taking it too seriously. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I came home crying too. Is that what you want? Of course not. But this week you're a zombie. You know what you need? I stand up inside. What you gonna say, Jesus? No, she points at me. You need homeostasis. Did you just biology me? Sure did. I falter. No comeback in sight. In the end, I give up. I gotta go. I mumber. I pick up my tray and leave, ignoring the look of disappointment on Alice's face. That night, I lie in bed with the window open, twisting my hair and listening to the shouts and conversations on the busy sidewalk below. Old East is close to the north perimeter. So I suppose every week we'll be able to hear the undergrads leaving the campus grounds and heading to the main drag for the bars and clubs. For a moment, I wonder if I'll hear, I'll hear the legend born. Maybe they'll go back to the beer garden to celebrate the end of the trials. I make myself imagine the gala, even though it hurts. A grand room, hundreds of people in formal wear, a stage. When I imagine Nick in a tuxedo and bow tie, I curl into a tight ball of want on my bed. I lean into the vision to remind myself of the loss. I see him, tall, handsome, and for a short while, a quick moment, a heartbeat, mine. On the other side of the room, Alice's snores are light and even. I know she's right. I don't have homeostasis. I don't have equilibrium. No matter the stimuli. Patricia knew it. Saw it. And wanted nothing of it. My agony has a hunger. I've discovered. It doesn't want the truth. Not really. It just wants to feed itself sorrow. Until no other emotion is left. My father calls before 8 on Friday morning. He knows I don't have an early class on Fridays, but he rarely calls me before noon, especially this close to the weekend when his shop is busiest. Dad? I say holding my phone to my ear as I pull on a pair of jeans. Hey, kiddo. 
I half expect to hear the heavy clink of dropped tool on concrete and the high-pitched whirlwind whine of pneumatic wrench, but there's nothing like that. You busy? Nope. My first class is at 10. What's up? Come have breakfast with me. My treat. I chuckle. <laughs> if only. No, kid. Meet me downstairs and bring your books. I freeze. Wait, you're here? Yep. Sitting in the lot. Um, why are you here? Oh, just in the area. It's a four-hour drive, and if he's here, that means he took off work. No in the area about it. I close my eyes and sigh. Alice is a good friend, he finishes with a warm laugh. Better hurry before one of those meter cops give me a ticket. My father has worked with cars his entire life. Starting in the shop before moving to a, up to a manager 10 years ago. He still gets into a repair every now and then. It shows in the ever-present gray-black line of grime under his short nails. And the faint grease fingerprints on the upholstery of his car door. He's my height and stocky. And he was, if he's not in the shop polo and khakis, he's in a tracksuit and cap. His skin is a deep earthy brown the color of fallen pine needles. When I open the passenger side door, he smiles, and his entire face rises until his eyes tilt up at his temples. Seatbelt. His eyes flick down to my wrist and then to his side mirror as we pull out the drive. Black and blue striped tracksuit today, white cap with the blue tar heel. His car smells like home. I expect to feel the twinge of pain in my chest, and I do, but it's chased by warmth. The Waffle House is thick with the smell of processed syrup and stale coffee. Mostly empty booths line the wall to our left, and a mottled gray counter runs down the right. The quiet murmurs, the sizzle of the griddle in the kitchen, and the low jukebox music remind me that there's life outside UNC. The woman behind the counter barely glances up when we enter. Dad leads us to the empty booth that looks the less sticky. The red cushion back, backs hiss and sigh when we slide in, and there's a constellation of crumbs strewn across the creaky table. A waitress strolls over, one hand deep in her black apron and the other clutching a pair of stained menus. I'm Cheryl. I'll be taking care of you today. Here's a menu. Can I start y'all off with some drinks? She tugs a notepad out of and waits, watching us from underneath the black visor. Dad flips his menu over once, then hands it back to her. Coffee, please. Black. And I'll have a waffle with city ham and smothered and covered hash browns. Large. And how about you, sweetie? I hand mine back, too. A large orange juice pecan, pecan waffle with regular hash browns smothered, covered, and peppered, please. Dad waits until Cheryl's on the other side of the counter before he sits back and looks me fully in the eye. The silence is interminable, the kind that makes everything said afterward a thousand times louder. I avoid his eyes and inspect the condiment collection at the edge of the table. It's the usual suspects. A1, Heinz ketchup and mustard, salt, pepper, and a glass sugar dispenser heavy enough to double as a free weight. I wrinkle my nose at the Tabasco coffee. Texas Pete or nothing. Thank goodness there's a small bottle of it at the back. You gonna make me pull it out of you? My father's voice is low and measured, slower in person than on the phone. It releases that part of me that I'm always holding tight at school, even if what he's saying makes me shift uncomfortably in my chair. You bribing me, you bribing me with hash browns so you don't have to? Yup. That ain't fair. Life ain't fair. His tone sharpens. You gonna make me ask again? I swallow hard. No, sir. He sniffs nodding a thank you to Cheryl when she drops off our drinks. 
My lower lip trembles. My chest tightens. I don't want to lie again. I can't. But I can't put him at risk by telling the truth. The hands of the order and my mistakes are still clenched tight around my neck, squeezing when they want to suffocate me. The tears I'd held back since I'd heard his voice on the phone fill my eyes now, and I look down at my orange juice to hide them. Bree, he says softly. He reaches a weathered hand out to me across the table. I shake my hand. I shake my head, refusing to look at him. Look at me, kiddo. You can come home if you want. I'll move you out today, but it better not be because that dean got you scared. I stare at him, gobsmacked, while Shara deposits our food. What? Alice says you've been going hard with school, not acting like yourself. I didn't send you here so you could run yourself into the ground. I heard the better than you in that man's voice. Just don't want you doing all this because of him. By the time he finishes, Dad is smearing butter into his waffles squares in angry hard strokes. My father has never been to college himself. He'd never gotten the chance to, not really. But now I wondered if he wished he'd had. Or if he tried and met his own Dean McKinnon. That's not it, I mutter. I can handle classes. And the last time I heard from the Dean was the day he called you. Well, what's got you down then? Was it therapy? Because we can find you someone new. He cuts a bite of waffle and sticks it together with a piece of city ham. Before he puts it in his mouth, he gestures at my plate with his fork. Eat your food before it gets cold. I pick up the Texas Pete and sprinkle it on my hash browns while I think. Then a question comes. Did mom ever talk to you about grandma? My father's gray-flecked, bushy eyebrows rise and he sighs heavily, sitting back in the worn booth. Not much. Your grandmother died when she was young. Eighteen or so, I think. So she was gone by the time your mom and I met. He looks out the window, eyes going distant. I could tell her mother's death weighed heavy on her, you know, real heavy. That surprises me. I knew the facts about my grandmother. She did heron a salon in Texas where my mother was raised. She didn't have any siblings herself. She died from cancer. I knew about the woman, but I rarely saw my own mother's pain from losing her. She never said anything. He smirks as he reaches for the Texas Pete. It didn't come out like that. It came out in how she raised you. He chuckles, tapping the Texas Pete bottle until it half empties onto his hash browns. I didn't notice it at first. But she had those these nerves that started up when you were, what, 10, 11? You do a sloppy job cleaning your room or forget to take out the trash. Didn't matter what it was. She just got on you for it. You remember? That's just parents, though. He shrugs. Black parents been pushing their kids hard for decades. My parents did it. I know my your grandmother did it, too. But your mother took it to another level. She tried to co control it around you. But in private. He was anxious, rattled, sometimes even straight up scared. Had nightmares about you getting hurt or kidnapped. A few years ago, it started taking longer and longer for her to calm down. One week when you were 13, you left the milk out on the counter overnight. Remember that? It took three days for her to let it go. That's when I finally told her, I said, Faye, she's a kid. She's going to mess up. And she'd say, she just wanted to get you ready. Make sure you can handle yourself if we weren't around. My chest tightens. Did she know? My father reads my expression. I think she was scared she'd leave you early, just like her mother left. He inhales sharply and draws his shoulders back. And I know we're both thinking the same thing. That she was right.
My hands wipe at the tears traveling in quiet streams down my cheeks. She knew what this is like. He stares out the window, voice heavy with grief and regret. We weren't raised with therapy and all that. Not something black folks did or talked about. If you said anything, you got sent to the church. <sighs> anyway, when you applied to Carolina, it was like the dam she had inside. Just broke. And all of it, every fight, every worry, came out on you. Because she never wanted me to come here. Or maybe she just wasn't ready to let you go and got mad at you for forcing her hand. But that fight wasn't your fault, Bree, And it wasn't hers either. All of that stuff your mom was holding back, hiding. It's why I wanted to make sure you started seeing somebody soon. So you could get some peace. Maybe head all of that suffering off at the pass. While my father takes a sip of his cold coffee and grimaces, then signals for Cheryl, I look at him with new eyes. He'd done all of this thinking and planning and hoping for me because of the pain he'd witnessed in my mother. Her death had sent him on his own mission to save our family, and I never noticed. I'd never taken the time to notice. After Cheryl refills his cup and moves on, I ask, Why didn't she move us away from here? Then I'd never know about this school. In some ways, I think your mother couldn't stand Carolina, but she loved it something fierce too. Said no matter how she felt about that school, she could never get it out of her system. He shrugs. You would have found out about her graduating from here eventually. Maybe applied anyway, just because she did. I take one of the two small waxy napkins from the metal dispenser. I think she was right anyway. I whisper and wipe my nose. He looks up from blowing on his coffee, startled. You say what now? About me not being ready, I explained. His eyes sharpen and he clunks his coffee down. You got that wrong. All wrong. And I thought you were smart. You're wrong because she was wrong. It was never about you not being ready, kiddo. It was always about her. I set my jaw stubbornly. Stop trying to make me feel better. He fixes me with a stone glare. That's the truth. She wasn't ready to let you face the world. But you've been ready, kid. She made sure of it. He shifts in his chair to dig in his jacket and pulls out a small square pocket Bible. I recognize the worn, cracked-down leather and the gilded golden edges immediately. It's my mother's, the one she carried with her everywhere. Flip to the back. He hands it to me and I take it, pushing my untouched plate of food aside to clear a space on the table. Probably not something she meant for anyone to see, but... I love her, and I miss her, and his eyes filled with tears, and he squeezes them and lets out a breath. I think she'll forgive me up, forgive us for snooping. I open the Bible with shaking fingers. It feels like I'm touching something intimate and private, and I am. Personal Bibles, even though I've never owned one, always seem mystical, like the longer someone carries one the more their spirit lives in the pages. As I flip through the thin, small print paper, her smell wafts over my nose. Verbena and lemon, mixed with a bit of leather. The last section is blank, for notes. On the very last page, in curling script, and dated just last year, is a small note. Lord, she is stronger than I ever was. I worry her challenges will be just as powerful. I worry that I am running out of time. Please protect her and give me the strength to let her go. Got something else for you, kid. It's in the car. Be right back. 
My dad puts his napkin aside and shoves out of the booth. I nod and stare down at the Bible in my hands. Letting the gift of her words wash over me. My mother had carried so much pain from her own loss. Maybe the exact things Patricia had said I had inside me. Traumatic grief. PCBD grief. Then, after I was born, it became anxiety. Maybe she'd had the feeling like she could explode. Maybe she'd had my fear and fury, and she hid it from me as best as she could. Just knowing that we have this in common, knowing my feelings are an echo of hers, is a revelation. It makes me sad that she suffered. It makes me wish I could talk to her about it. It makes me want to tell her that I understand. I've been chasing the hidden truth for so long, and now I find out that one of her truths already lives inside me. It makes me feel closer to her somehow, and right now, that feels like enough. When my dad slides back into the booth, he's laughing under his breath. <laughs> I thought maybe about donating her clothes. You know how many clothes she had? In shoes? My God. I smile. Tall order. You might have to take a few trips to the donation center. Yeah, he says with a sigh. Bringing myself to do it, it's another thing. Rich Glover down at the shop lost his wife last year. He says that once you get rid of their clothes, that's when you know they're really gone. He shakes his head. Anyway, I was in the closet the other day and I found this. Thought you might like to have it. He hands me a square blue velvet box. I recognize it immediately. This is where she stored her golden charm bracelet. She'd only ever had two charms on it. One with my name and one with my father's. It was one of her nicer pieces, but it's the one she seemed to love the most. Even now, the smell of her in the velvet is so strong and alive like she'd never left. It overwhelms me, bypassing any rational parts of my brain and zinging straight to my memory. It pulls out a weekend of shopping with her at the mall, unearths the sensation of her hugs, sinks me down into her lap when I was little, rushes me past every single one of her cool hands on my forehead when I was sick. I move to open it, but he stops it. He stops me. Open it when you get back to your room. I am. I eye him. So I'm going back to my room. You're not going to tell me not to study too hard. You could study hard, but only if that's how you want to do it. He gives me a wry smile. No matter what you do, you got to live your life, kiddo. You gotta be in the world. That's what she will want you to do. He reaches across the table to take both of my hands in his. Don't make your life about the loss. Make it about the love. And that is the end of chapter 41. So guys, we have recapped chapters 39, 40, and 41 today. 41 was an add-on, a little special for y'all. But... Come to find out, Bree's mom really was in a hit and run. And uh, the legend born who were pretty much testing her, trying to be her friends, just to make sure that the mesmer worked, weren't really there for that. Again, they were just making sure the mesmer worked. And she was able to fake the funk to keep herself safe and do what she needed to do. But... I don't know, something's telling me that this hit and run still isn't just an accident, and there's going to be something else that comes out. But what do you guys think? That was juicy. That was real juicy. Um, Next week, we will read chapters 42 and 43, and uh, we will be moving on to chapter 44. So... I, I just feel like this is going to be some more shit going down because of everything that previously went down. I mean, the fact that they have been reaching out 
like how do you think they feel about that like i don't know i don't know this is it's getting messy and i don't know if i hope Bree just doesn't give up and and call it quits you know um but we'll definitely see we'll see but yeah guys um until next week stay true stay you namaste